God damn, I feel like so much change has happened this this year. I've changed so much, and yet what is this residue of feeling exactly the same? So this important conversation about change at this last day of the year with Stephanie McCarter on Ovid and the metamorphoses, well, let it take the place of any sort of idea of resolutions. Resolutions, I don't know, they seem seems so demonic but one changes over and over again if one lives the cells of my skin puffed and tugged and with a great shout let go of their tethers until looking up I saw myself like a cloud like ectoplasm like an angel among the branches of trees then peeling layer after layer I went to it letting go until only the elemental worm remained, letting itself down on a string of spittle. That's a Ruth's stone ending of a poem, finding myself. So, finding myself. Finding ourselves. Well, it takes a certain amount of suffering of the worm into change, into the soup of the chrysalis uh, contained in the chrysalis, deep and desperate uncertainty of change. Existing in that state for a moment and seeing the world around you and your part in it that is also so strange and unknown to you, but yet if you can find yourself somehow in the choral frequency of the world, well then something, something really shifts. I think this conversation with Stephanie about Ovid's sprawling poem is really 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 important I think Ovid gets to the heart of what it means to be involved in the greater story of myth and culture and nature consciousness power dynamics gender translation all these things are addressed by Ovid himself, but also by the translators that that work with the text, the readers that approach the text. And it's really tragic that places like the New York Times magazines have decided to stop printing their little tiny square of poetry in the magazine. And that these outlets aren't seeing the opportunity they have to engage with this ancient f fundamental art that really was the original utterance of man. I, I, f I see poetry as our, our, our place in the chorus of, of this world, and it's, of course, heartbreaking to see it... Um, well, not be seen and honored for what it is. Contemporary translations of ancient texts speaks to the enduring power of the language, of the conversation, of the relevance. Now let's hear it. We can learn a lot from the Roman way of looking at the world. That you know, we talked about how the, the, the universe could have a consciousness. Well, they imbued nature with a consciousness as well. I and mean, this was really at the heart of Roman religion. For this particular poem, 
to constantly br break the divide between humans and objects and nature, right? We, those, you can't separate those out in this poem. Um, he does invite us to see these things as intricately connected as different kinds of uh, ways that you can be uh, both embodied and ensouled. I think it can be useful to read Ovid um, just to be reminded of these complex relationships we have. Welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. I'm Bianca Stone, and I'm talking today with Stephanie McCarter. McCarter is a classics professor at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. And she writes from within a deep interest in the classical, the personal, and the political, all of which she shows us overlap and inform one another. Her main work is in translation of Greco-Roman literature, and today we're talking about her most recent publication, a translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which she worked into iambic pentameter and published with Penguin Classics in 2022. McCarter's Metamorphoses received the Harold Morton Landon Translation Award from the Academy of American Poets, was also included in the New Yorker's Best Books of 2022, and has just come out in softcover this month. Of her metamorphoses, Daniel Mendelssohn writes in the New Yorker, McCarter confronts the tricky issues associated with both Ovid and his epic, not only in her forthright introduction, but in the translation itself where, like an art restorer removing decades of browned varnish from an old master, she strips away a number of inaccuracies and embellishments that have accreted in translations over the decades and centuries, obscuring the sense of certain passages, particularly those portraying women and sexual violence. Amazingly, McCarter is the first female translator of the epic into English in over 60 years, and McCarter has published uh, other translations, a verse translation of Horace's Epodes and others, and is currently working on a translation of Catullus. She studied classics and English as an undergraduate at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and earned an MA and PhD in classics at the University of Virginia. And Stephanie, welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's a real treat. Yay. I admit I have come to Ovid late in life, um, to the whole of the metamorphoses. And yet, of course, I feel it's always been there. Um, besides its constant reference in contemporary poetry and literature that I read, as a child, I vividly remember my mother reading me Icarus and Daedalus. And I don't think there's a human in this culture that isn't aware even just a little bit of the origin of the word narcissism. And of course, many find familiarity in the art that is portrayed from Ovid's work. And so associate Daphne with the turning into a tree and Apollo's arms reaching out to her. On closer reading of Ovid's work now, I realize how important he is to so much of the literature today, but also of our understanding of the human psyche. Of course, I'm also speaking here of our shared myths, and that does not confine to Ovid. In any case, I'm hoping 
you could start by talking about what drew you um, as a translator and scholar to Greco-Roman poetry, to Ovid in particular, and secondly, why you felt, as Ovid clearly did, the spirit move you to spin again this tale. Um, well, I came to Greek and Latin poetry mainly because I wanted to study English poetry. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the time I was very young, middle school, even earlier, I loved English poetry and um, and read it all of the time. And it made me feel very odd in my uh, school where it wasn't like a topic of conversation very often. Um, so my ambition um, was to be a an English teacher in high school. Mm. I wanted to be just like my high school English teacher, Mrs. McNeely, who um, was graceful and brilliant and kept fresh flowers on her desk. <laughs> and to, to me, that was the pinnacle of what one could become. Oh, that's so <laughs> and, beautiful. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, I... I just took Latin um, in high school because my mom recommended it, and I thought it was the strangest thing for her to recommend to me. You know, yeah, I, that's <laughs> not something usually the parents recommend. No, and I mean in this century. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, this is still in the '90s, and luckily, the public high school that I went to in Tennessee had a Latin teacher, mm. and um, and so I took it and uh, and just was really good at it as a as a kind of intellectual puzzle. Um, and so when I went to university at the University of Tennessee, I took it just to fulfill my language requirement, but it had never, you know, it wasn't something that spoke to me in the same way that, you know, the English poetry I was reading and loved spoke to me until I started reading, um, Horace and Virgil, Mm. um, and Horace, especially, (laughs) um, I saw there the font, uh, you know, the starting point of all the things I loved. Um, you know, I went through a major Emily Dickinson period when I was oh, in yeah. high school. Wow. Uh, as one does. And um, and I just remember like looking at a Horatian ode and saying, oh, I mean, you can see the, the just the, the sort of clean um, architecture of, a Dickinson poem there already in Horace. And so to mm-hmm. me, it was just really interesting and became really intellectually fulfilling to, um, to go back to the source. I thought that's what it felt like. And, right. and also I, um, I loved Horace because, um, you know, he engaged me in what it meant to live a good life in a way that I found even at the age of, you know, 18 years old studying this in college, um, it just felt very meaningful in, in the way that I've carried with me always. Um, Horace has often been called the poet for middle-aged men. Oh, that's <laughs> I've def- defied that by loving him since I was an 18-year-old um, girl and um, yeah. or young woman. And um, so, yeah, no, and it just ends from there. It just it took over more and more. And, um, and classics became the thing I wanted to do, and I never looked back. But at the same time, choosing that, pulled me away from the English poetry that I so loved. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> so um, when But again, I, like going back to its source. Right, right but that's true. But, it, you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, I, I didn't get to, to, to chew over a lot of the, the English poetry I still loved and also some of the forms that I had loved um, right. as well. Um, so when I, when I got tenure, <laughs> I, many years later, and I, I remember sitting in my office I had two young kids. My daughter was less, she was about a year old, I suppose. 
And I just said to myself, I don't ever want to write another word unless it's something I just really want to write. Mm. Um, and I think that day I just sort of sat down and started translating Horace and um, it brought together um, English and classics for me in a way that was creatively satisfying. And that's not something I can say about my scholarship, although I love to write scholarship too, but it's not creatively satisfying. Right. Um, and so uh, translation is, sits at a place where all of my different um, interests converge. Um, at, you know, I can think about the forms of English poetry. I can think about the Latin poetry that is the source of so much of it. I can take my scholarly learning and then combine that with creativity. And so mm. it's just for me a very perfect activity. Um, and Ovid in particular um, became someone I it started to feel inevitable that I would translate Ovid after a while. Um, even as I was translating Horace, I was sort of sneaking in Ovid. I remember um, being in the car with my spouse and our kids, uh, driving to the beach, sitting in the passenger seat, just translating Ovid while my kids <laughs> took naps in the back. <laughs> Casual. Just casual, yeah. <laughs> sneaking if you like. Oh, you're not scrolling through your phone. Oh no, I'm I'm translating <laughs> Ovid. That's right. So um, it just became something I started doing, and you know, and it just became very fortuitous mm-hmm. that uh, Penguin reached out at that time. But um, but the one reason I really wanted to turn to Ovid was um, that this was something that I mean I teach the metamorphoses all the time. Okay. I teach I teach him in Latin. I teach Ovid's poem in Latin. Um, I teach tons of Ovid. I'm teaching Ovid right now, but the elegiac poetry, I um, teach it in women and gender classes in the ancient world. I've taught it in mythology classes. I teach it in sex and sexuality classes. And and with the existing translations, it had always just been quite a struggle to dig mm. into the questions I wanted to dig into. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in the way Ovid presents the body and how that aligns or does not align with the identities that bodies contain. And so this is something that I talk about with my students a lot, but it became very difficult to talk about with the existing translations. And so um, I just I just felt this real pull towards, towards translating Ovid. Um, but you yeah. sensed in that disparity between what the bodies contained and how mm-hmm. the bodies were portrayed in the language that there was something off in the translation itself, not off in yeah. Ovid's. Exactly. Or you were at least <laughs> curious about... Is there something off here? Yes. I mean, I, I, um, I, I had translated the story, so I had taught so often the story of Daphne um, turning into the laurel tree, of course. And part of the question with her was whether her identity remains when she transforms into the tree. Right. And so, you know, so often with my students, we talk about you know, what is a body. And um, in the second line of Ovid's, meta- in the, of the proem, he says he's going to sing of, um, shapes changed into new bodies which kind of reverses right. what you imagine <laughs> right. bodies changed into new shapes and so Interesting. she she still has a body when she's a tree it's just a tree body <laughs> and yeah. um and so you know i just really forefronted the idea of the body but so often the way that previous translators had handled her body just didn't reflect the latin um in a very com- accurate way at all and so um you know, they would feminize her body and she doesn't have a feminine body ever really in the, um, in the right. text. Right. And, um, and so this just became very important to me to, um, 
to really when it came to the body and to sexuality and sexual violence to apply a lens that I thought would help me arrive at a more accurate translation. Um, and that would be informed by years of, of translating Ovid and teaching it to, to students um, who are interested in these questions. It's so amazing. And it leads me to the second question, which is like, Ovid's prevailed for so long, yet to how fresh a new translation can be yeah. speaks volumes to the complexity of language itself and translation and how there can never be one and how two in the continuous need for new translation what that says is ah there's never a single definitive rendition even in an analytical reading of a text in one's own language, of course, right. we find we cannot settle on a single interpretation or meaning behind it. Perhaps if it's a great work, right? It always slips away a little bit. There's always something untranslatable. But you speak volumes in your introduction to the ambiguity of Ovid's voice or his underlying message, so to speak, in his poetry's focuses. So I was thinking... Is ambiguity an essential element to bear as a translator? And as a translator, is it tempting, and it sounds like it is, to guide the reader towards a certain kind of reading? Um, and, and how can you avoid that unconscious writer and reader that you are within you who perhaps thinks, oh, this is what Avin would want or intend? Um, or even should you resist that impulse Where's that balance there? It seems like with the constant male gaze upon the woman through Ovid, there's a lot of issues there in that it's that's the only gaze we're seeing. But right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you see the male gaze is certainly there in the text, but the problem is when a translator um, compounds that <laughs> through through right. their own through their own male gaze and yeah. then assumes that the reader will will share that. But I, I mean Ovid is a slippery fellow and that's one of the best things about him. His writing is so infinitely um you know can you can metamorphose it again and yeah. again and again, right? right. Which is right, why right. we which is why it's you know inspired all of the art and stories and poems that you were mentioning at the at the beginning. And I think the translator has to allow that, right? I mean one of the most um, interesting things about Ovid is his, I think his awareness throughout that there's no such thing as a definitive story. Mm. And also his awareness that translation is similarly slippy, slippery. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so like leaving some of that open, I think is um, absolutely essential. And so therefore I think the translator has to constantly scrutinize what their own biases may be that they're bringing to the text. Right. Um, and the other thing I think too, is that um, so many translations have um, made assumptions that Ovid like shares this male gaze. And so I just thought, right. why not make a translation that takes the opposite assumption right, right. a little bit <laughs> that he right. doesn't necessarily. Right. Um, and, and so that means that these different translations are, do are, are different interpretations mm -hmm. and, um, but that's just, that is the nature of translation. It's always going to be interpretive. There's no way you can back away from your own, um, you know, from your own readings of the poem right. entirely. Um, right. There's otherwise, you know, there would be no need for the translator, <laughs> right? right? Then we could just run it all through a machine and, um, and, and get that. But I mean, part of the really interesting thing about reading translation is getting to see how, how a, a person 
has interpreted this story into a different language. Um, And and I don't expect a translation to be able to do that, um, to illuminate every single side, certainly of a poem like The Metamorphoses, which is so complex and long and filled with so many different narrators, um, which is why it is really cool to have this translated and retranslated and retranslated again and again, because you get, um, you know, you get a thousand versions of this <laughs> epic. Right. While he's like telling, like, while he's telling a story about Orpheus telling a story about someone telling a story. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that gets even multiplied in translators' hands, right. which is so, which is kind of cool, um, which makes it all the slipperier and you can't, you cannot ever grasp it in your hands <laughs> for very long. Well, I love that. I love that um, embracing the slipperiness of it, embracing the ambiguity or the and the dynamic nature of poetry itself, and that yeah. translation as is not a sort of you could think of translation as something that you're obligated to do in order to impart information to other cultures as like oh this is important that you read Keats and in Italian or something, you know, like, like we, we should share things across the ocean. Of course, that's part of it. Cause it's like practical in a way, right. but there's also something, there's something else about translation yeah. that translators are showing me that I've never sort of seen before. But as I start to read more things in translation and multiple translations, I start to see how, how, fucking exciting it can be in in terms of telling us about language and about how we communicate with one another and it's so crazy reading Ovid because of all the reasons you're saying it's so meta (laughs) metamorphosis is so meta um because well I didn't even fully appreciate ever before reading your translation the fact that his is a translation in a way Mm -hmm. right so yeah um there's like I was like, wait, I thought that that the myth of of um, Eros and Psyche was or Cupid and Psyche was in Metamorphosis, but it's not in his Metamorphosis, is it? No. Um, so Ovid was rewriting a text too, uh, and this is you know, so for the for the less ac- or the more non academic reader, it's to parse this out is is sort of important. Um, you note that Ovid, quote, never simply rehashes his literary sources and often takes great pains to condense what they include and expand on what they omit, giving us a sense that there is always more old stories than meets the eye. This yeah. I love this because I couldn't be more excited always about the unseen element of everything in existence, right? <laughs> right? But language poetry as that most vivid um medium in which to explore the unconscious and consciousness itself wow of course it would contain the unseen stories so but it got me thinking too about the ancient art of retelling myths and rewriting them and taking those liberties which he of course did right exactly as you're saying and exactly as you're saying you took those liberties and saying oh what what, what was omitted already in the translations that I shall now p- place back in. So I, what, what did poetry writing look like in Ovid's time? And how was he shifting the game a little bit? Yeah. And um, what did he make new about his, his metamorphoses? Sure. I mean, part of the, the, 
bold thing he does is he folds the entire epic tradition into what he's done. Um, mm. So he's he's writing in response to the Homeric epics, into Apollo, uh, in response to Apollonius's Argonautica, to Virgil's Aeneid, this entire epic tradition. And not only does he um, sort of write it all into his epic, he omit he omits. <laughs> huge parts right. of it as he does so right. and he and he flips around so much of it he's um you know for instance um and he does this also with tragedy which i can talk about in a moment but you know for instance one of my favorite bits of uh the aeneid uh, his, it's a section called the little aeneid it comes towards the end of the metamorphoses and um virgil had to- told us the story about how aeneas in this sort of seer she's called the sibyl had descended to the underworld so that he could meet his his father who had died and he gets to see this parade of future romans who are going to be born um and ovid sort of folds this into his epic but he omits all that and he tells us instead about how when aeneas and the sibyl are coming back up from the underworld uh, they have a conversation and she gets to tell her her story about Mm -hmm. how you know what how, how she came to be in the situation that she's in. Um, so it is a reminder that um, every single story is selective right. and we choose the bits we want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are going to be a thousand other ways that you could tell that story from a thousand other perspectives. What if we told that story from the Sybil's perspective? Right. Um, and, you know, so he does this again with tragedy. So he, um, Euripides Medea, for example, is famous because Medea kills her children. Um, and, uh, and Ovid barely mentions that. He gives us instead um, everything else she did <laughs> that, oh, is wow. also, that is also yeah. worth knowing about. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you know, if we reduce her just to this one moment in time where she makes right. this horrendous, uh, violent decision, then you're not understanding the complexity of what it means to um, have had the experiences that she has. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it just, it's a constant invitation to think, well, but what about this? What about this version? What about right. this possibility? What about this character? We could tell it from a whole different character's point of view. Yeah. And you know, I think that nicely applies to life as well. Like, um, you know, a reminder that we can, we all are going to narrate the same events in, in completely different ways from completely yep. different perspectives. And no person will have the same way to tell a a single story or translate a single poem or even read a single poem. Um, Right. And um, so I, that's, that's one of the most compelling things about um, Ovid. And also, you know, he's very good at taking some of the themes of earlier poetry and letting us apply those to new characters. So one of my favorite uh, ways he does this is to think about the theme of piety it's not a great translation for it. It's like duty okay. and uh, often towards the gods, towards the state, towards family. And this is something that is a very masculinized trait in so many of the previous epics. Um, Aeneas is famously the hero who has the duty towards the Roman state. Okay. Um, but Ovid says, what does that mean when you make a woman wrestle with it? Instead? Yeah. <laughs> right. How does that yeah. change things? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's just, you know, it's just a constant reminder that not only are there other versions that, um, but also that, you know, people of different genders are going to experience these stories in different ways and these right. events in different ways. Um, and yeah, and you were, you were saying like that he does this in, in, in his use of tragedy 
as a form and were you meaning in the like drama of the masculine is that or what were you thinking with the I was thinking of just the previous uh, previous poetic tradition so it's not just sort of uh, epic precursors that he's playing with he's also playing with uh, tragedy like the ancient tragedies you would have seen on the Athenian stage by um, uh, especially Euripides Um, so Euripides who wrote a lot of uh, women-centered tragedies, especially in relation to the Trojan War. Um, so the Trojan women, for instance. And so uh, I think Ovid sort of takes from him this this idea that you can take a very masculine story, such as war, but refocus it around female characters. So okay. he's playing with tragedy a lot. He's playing with philosophy too. I mean, there's so yeah. much previous philosophy that's worked into this. Um, so there's nothing off limits to Ovid. <laughs> um, I love that. As he... As he is writing his uh, writing his poem, he even plays with Horace. He brings some lyric poetry in as well. I mean, he just folds everything into this epic. Oh, it's so exciting! It's so inspiring! It's so inspiring. I was, you know, I was thinking about because I'm teaching this class and I'm using the using Ovid, but we're also reading a ton of contemporary poetry and thinking mm-hmm. about the the psyche and and consciousness and poetry. But it got me thinking about. Uh, in terms of speakers in poetry or the I in poetry and the ambitiousness, the breadth of Ovid's project versus, I mean, it's so hard to compare, right? It's so hard to compare like, uh, like contemporary poetry with like Virgil and Homer and Ovid. And, and, but I, I can't help but feel like that there's something so limited about the way that we approach the speaker and the eye and the potentiality of what it means to put a book of poetry together. And of course there's this like, on one hand, you know, very rich and incredible like obsession with the self and the experience of the self and and one's by autobiography let's say as but what i what i'm starting to realize and really um get interested in is how we don't um and this is this is not everybody but in a way that many of us overlook the fact that that is included in the wider like shared mythology that we've all inherited and we all live. And I, so I'm thinking about how we limit ourselves to our idea of what our one story is mm-hmm. and that we cannot tell our story through these other shared stories or even through the exploration of other stories um, or retelling of our own stories. Let's even add that element. Like you were saying, like many stories have other angles we have many different selves we have many different experiences within ourselves but we sort of get obsessed with the idea that we have one self and one experience the so there's all that but then I also was thinking about Ovid himself writing this and is Ovid in this text and of course in the prom and then in the ending little poem he feels very present Mm-hmm. So tell me about how Ovid fits in as as a as a as an autobiographical figure in here. Well, you know, it, it's I think this is an issue throughout his poetry. I mean, all of the autobiographical facts we know about Ovid come from his poetry. We know nothing yeah. really outside of that. Um, oh, that's so know, interesting. A couple little scraps of things that people say later, um, but there's not really much at all other than what he tells us and some people have argued that he invite he just simply invents huge parts of his autobiography i mean some people have even argued that his exile never happened oh my god um, <laughs> wow but it was just you know it was yeah. just a poetic 
like a poetry retreat. Yeah, like it's just a more poetic fiction, right? So just a way he can, I actually, I mean, I'm not convinced. I don't know. I'm not convinced that it's a poetic fiction, but I love the idea. All we have is the fiction, right? Right. We don't know. And and this is what's so great about studying uh, classical antiquity is, so these these writers are so irrecoverable. Yes. And and for me, approaching Ovid's poem, it is so hard to find him there because um, it's almost as though, you know, this this poem dropped out of the ether. He's so far removed from me. I, you know, right. there is there's the final epilogue, but he pretty much just predicts that he's going to transform into his book and, right. beca- and live. <laughs> Right, and by saying that he does, I don't know. It kind of does. This is and so now this is all we have left of him is this big brick of a book, Um, and and others, Um, and and you know also his personality shifts so much from one um, from one of his works to another. So right now I'm teaching the Ars Amatoria, Uh and the Ovid who writes I in that work is so um, just he's just despicable. He's, oh, interesting. Just, he's a terrible person yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he, 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 it's a manual on how to go and pick up women in the city of Rome and seduce them. And if that fails, you can resort to rape. And I hate oh, to, so it, that is yeah. it, it, cause I couldn't tell when I read about that book, like what the tone was, like I couldn't yeah. tell if it was super icky or not. It's so super icky. Oh, it's, okay. Bummer. Yeah. It's terribly icky. But at the same time, but again, like you have to allow there to be some possible different a distance between Ovid as the poet right, and right. then the eye, the right? Yeah. Yep. And, and you kind of have to keep that distance in there always um, in ancient poetry. And, you know, there are a lot of eyes in like first person narrators in the metamorphoses. And, or he'll turn and say, and even you, blah, blah, blah. Yes. As if yeah. he's sitting there. Yeah. 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 I mean, then there are times when he talks directly to you as the reader. And you have to wonder, like, am I what he had in mind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, cre- um, it's kind of eerie. Yeah. It is. It's, yeah. you know, he's speaking to you across centuries and centuries and centuries. And probably even I think when he was writing that, was aware that, um, you, his language may not be your language, that where he is may not be where you are. Um, um, in the epilogue, his what his poet poem is doing is it's moving, right? It's moving outside of Rome. It's moving beyond. And so he, he already sees this sort of movement. Um, so I think he probably would have found it as interesting to entertain who we might be as we find it to entertain who he was. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> And, um, and, and, you know, I, I, I've thought long and hard about what it, he, how he might have reacted to knowing that someone like me was going to be his translator in the future. Um, <laughs> I don't know. How do I'm you thinking. think? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I really don't. I think, I don't think he could have predicted so much um, about what was to become of his book, but I do think he would have um, understood completely that translation is the only way it could have survived as long as it has. Um, we've been translating um, the Metamorphoses since, you know, since the medieval period and um, we'll keep translating it. Um, but, you know, and then the other thing for me as the translator, um, and I'm, and I'm going to translate the Ars Amatoria next, is I have to put myself in the position of that I, Right, um, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, giving despicable lessons on how to pick up women in ancient Rome. Yeah. And so then the line between the translator I and the author I is one that's also an interesting 
place to explore. Um, to what degree does the translator get to take on that authorial persona? <laughs> um, right. Be- because, you know, Ovid didn't write a word of this book. I wrote every word in the book. <laughs> right, uh, right. Because he didn't write in English, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, I'm translating him, of course, but uh, there's not a single word in here that, you know, is exactly what he wrote or how he wrote it. So there's this weird right. merging of um, identities, I think, that happens in the act of translation as well. Absolutely. And could, and, and is there other instances in our life that that is even a possibility? It's so rare that to, and even I think of, of some of the tales in the story where two are merged into one. What is the one I'm thinking of? It was so grisly. Yeah. The Salmachus and Hermaphroditus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I guess it was it, it was not grisly because of the hermaphroditus part, uh, but because the rape, she, the rape yeah. <laughs> yeah, she didn't want to get raped, but then they became like one creature. It was yeah. uh, sort of sad, but um, yeah. But yes, the well, reading poetry alone, say, feels like an embodiment of another person within you because of the intimacy of the language, mm-hmm. the that untranslatability that I was talking about, which seems to invite a kind of unconscious self merging with another and then breath itself. Right. So like, um, you know, where a poet has so deliberately inserted that meter and that breath, you Mm -hmm. feel you're embodying them. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. And I think Ovid is so aware of that. I mean, in the, again, in the last lines, he says, I will be, my words will be on the, in the mouth of people, yes, right? That's right. That's so right. he, he see, he envisions you taking his words and uttering them through your mouth. And it is, <sighs> it is a kind of embodiment, right? It is. And, but it also kind of rides that, that there's so much about the loss of, being able to protect the containment of the body and the body being violated. Yes. Right. But there's a sort of, there's a great irony in the fact that there's a, there's an intimacy and a penetration in language itself and us sharing language together. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, and, you know, if his, if his form has taken up a new body, which is what, you know, metamorphosis right. is. Yeah. I mean, he, we are embodying Ovid in that moment. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I, 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 it's so, it's so incredible how, I mean, you totally nail it in, in the intro too, saying this is like these, that these questions are raised, that he raises them and that his skill allows for there to be no single answer, that there's this binary that's always at work that we're, that allows for us to keep investigating and unfolding meaning out of it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I, it makes me, I think we should read something from the book. Since we were just talking about it, we should, maybe we should read the prom and the, we could read the creation of the world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shall I read or shall you? You should, you shall read. I shall read. Okay. Um, So the proem gets a lot done in four lines. My spirit moves to tell of shapes transformed into new bodies. Gods inspire my work, for you've transformed it too. And from creation to my own time, spin out unceasing song. Before the sea and land and vaulting sky, all nature looked the same throughout the world. Chaos, they called, this rough and knotted mass. Nothing but sluggish weight and battling seeds of things just loosely joined in one big heap. 
No Titan yet endowed the world with light, no Phoebe waxed restoring her new horns, and in surrounding air no globe hung poised and balanced by its weight, nor with her arms had Amphitrite hugged the land's long edge. And though the earth and sea and air existed, you could not stand on earth or swim the wave, and air was void of light. No shape was fixed. Everything clashed, since in a single body, hot was at war with cold, and wet with dry, and soft with hard, and weightless things with weighty. A god in better nature stopped this strife. He cut off land from sky and waves from land, and cleaved bright heaven from the close-packed air. He disentangled these from that dark jumble, then bound them, now discreet, in friendly peace. The fiery, weightless force of dome-shaped heaven shot up and occupied the highest summit. Below this is the air, not quite as light. The denser earth attracted heavy matter and sank beneath its weight. The ocean's course enclosed the land and took the final place. When he, whichever god it was, had carved that now neat heap and shaped it into parts, he next, to make it equal all around, all around, sculpted the earth till it became a sphere. He poured out seas, then ordered them to swell with gales and wrap the shores of circled land. He added springs, great lakes, and ponds. He shut the sloping rivers and meandering banks. Some of these are absorbed by earth, while others flow to the deep and welcomed in its vast expanse of water, pound not banks but shores. He ordered fields to spread, valleys to sink, leaves to enshroud the woods, and peaks to rise. Shall I keep going, or is that a good place to stop? Sure, we can stop. I <laughs> got just what I was saying the, about the boundary of the body. Mm-hmm. There's something so interesting about in the beginning, everything was the same. Yeah. And that this unnamed God makes bodies of things. Yeah. And is too an artist. That's and, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really did try so hard to bring out the idea that he was an artist, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. um, You know, he's a sculptor, which is really interesting. Um, And sculpting and uh, weaving are two of the dominant art modes you see in the metamorphoses. Right, right. Um, So at the beginning in in line four, Ovid says, um, he, uh, he asks the gods to spin out unceasing song for him and so like weaving that's right he's spinning they're spinning the thread that he's going to weave together (laughs) which is kind of interesting um and we have so many cool weavers in the metamorphoses so we have of course philomela who weaves after she is raped by her brother-in-law terius who cuts out her tongue um and we have um uh, arachne who weaves in in defiance of minerva and then we have the Miniads, who are some of the most interesting weavers, but their story isn't as famous. But they defy the god Bacchus and stay That's inside right. while weaving. Um, and eventually they're transformed into bats, which happen to be like one of my favorite animals. So uh, it gives yeah. me just an extra uh, feeling of kinship with them. But um, so spiders weaving, and bats, interesting. Spiders and bats, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And and then the the nightingale, which is and like the night the all all black, yeah. Well. The nightingale, I guess, is not. But oh, I always think it's the yeah. nightingale's black. But you're right; it's not. That's funny. But you know, one thing is that the female nightingale doesn't sing. That's um, right. Yeah, which makes that really um, horrendous. And so they they turn Ugh. into they turn into creatures who no longer really have, I think, the ability to um, produce meaning in the same way they had before. Yeah. Um, 
you know, spiders can weave, but they can't embroider. They can't, um, you know, create pictures and right. and that kind of thing. But um, um, so yeah, so weaving associated with women, um, especially associated with defiance. And then you have sculpting, which is the uh, the mode of the the creator god. And then we have another we have other other sculptors in the work. Uh, Pygmalion, probably most famously. Um, I think sculpting is a sort of masculine um, form of art in the metamorphoses. And so these two kind of modes of art um, um, being introduced here uh, at the very beginning. Totally. And I wanted to talk about transformation in general, of course, which is um, such a massive theme. Um, By the end of metamorphosis, Pythagoras says, in all creation, there is nothing constant. This book is obsessive to say the least about literal profound physical change. Um, and that we are subject on this earth and in the psyche, I would say, which, uh, to change, which we bear or do not bear as the case may be. Um, in fact, you note that in terms of themes of the book, the overarching theme of the whole book is change itself, that change is inevitable. And change, and it's not even like, oh, it transformed her a bird and now I'm happy. It's like oftentimes change will beget more change or change will not necessarily be uh, a, a release like, say, Daphne. She's still like under, like she's under the control of Apollo, but right. even as a tree, not only that, but even though she's changed, she retains some the vestiges of her beautiful glittering self as before, you know, whatever they feminized it in some versions, but like she still retains her beauty. Um, So this podcast is called Odin Psyche um, in honor of the myth of Eros and Psyche and, and with a nod to Keats, but let's pause for a moment and acknowledge the fact that we do have a classic scholar here and a translator at hand and that the word Psyche itself is, well, I'm I in my research slightly confused, and maybe you can help me. Latin from the Greek meaning butterfly, but also meaning soul, but also meaning anima. So I'm it, how how the they all, um, or maybe anima was what they called psyche after or something like that. Right. But, um, but the butterfly, yeah. of course, yeah, the psyche as butterfly, the psyche as the butterfly soul. That- um, that there's some crucial element to the soul and mind being something defined by transformation itself. So what is this obsession on Ovid's part, but also on the part of the the tradition of the metamorphosis myths of transformation? Yeah. Well, I think it invites you to think of the nature of the psyche as much as it invites you to think about the nature of the body, right? Um, right, the, right. I mean, these are the two things that make everything right from the universe which i mean in antiquity the universe itself often had a kind of a bit of a soul right um in stoic philosophy this was like the fiery logos of the universe that kind of was um had had a kind of um yeah a psyche a a kind of mental capacity Mm, right consciousness to the universe consciousness to the universe and um and and you know, what then is the relationship between that and the body when the body changes? And so he doesn't, mm. um, 
he doesn't spell out the changes of the psyche in the same way that he's, he spells out the changes to the body, but it's always there, right? Um, you know, the, the myrmidons are ants who've turned into people, but they retain some of their habits from before, right? right. They're, they're frugal, they work hard. Um, and, and also, uh, you know, we have a, a character like Io who is changed oh. into a cow and then her she's still there completely conscious right yeah um she doesn't get a cow soul um and um but and this to me is just part of of the human question and so much of what is um interesting about the metamorphoses and why you have to have the pythagoras section there is it takes it out of the world of myth Mm -hmm. and it applies it to anybody who has a human body Mm. and therefore anybody who has a human mind Mm -hmm. and um and, you know, I, we ask ourselves all the time, I mean, now I'm in my 40s and I, my body is very different. I've had two mm-hmm. children and I'm, you know, my body's been through a lot in my life. And, um, and I can see that in the mirror very easily, right? Yeah. But, um, but what about my, what about myself and my soul, my mind? And I think um, Ovid, translating Ovid and thinking about Ovid a lot over the years has made me think, how have I changed um, along with my body? What, what is the relationship between that process? Is that, I mean, change is in so many ways guided by time, right? Time is the force that compels change to mm-hmm. bodies um, and to anything that you could call a body. So the universe, states, cities. Um, um, and, and of course, the mind is part of that as well. And you also have to... Um, realized that Ovid was coming out of a philosophical tradition following upon Lucretius, which saw the soul as totally material, right? So it's made mm. of cell, or it's, it's, made, of, it's yeah. made of atoms, right? Yeah. It's made of atoms every bit as much as the body is. And so, you know, what is the effect of time on that? And I think Ovid is, is perfectly aware of that, um, uh, of that tradition. And, you know, with a character like Pythagoras applying this principle of change directly to any human being, um, you know, he does invite us to think of, you know, how our minds change along with our bodies and, or in some ways, how I think what ends up happening very, um, in, in stories like Niobe, for example, um, when she turns into a stone because of grief, mm. I feel like her psyche gets stuck a little bit, right? <laughs> right? right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so her, her body turns into stone as a reflection of what grief can do to your mind, right? In yeah. ways that make it very hard to move forward through time. And there was other another myth too, where somebody was changed into a statue, but they could you could still see the tears on the statue. Yeah. So it does feel like that frozenness in a single emotion, being right. unable to actually change. Exactly, and it's into so the, the the stone is just a metaphor there, right? right. Um, you know, to what degree do we want to read some of these other stories somewhat metaphorically? Um, as as statements on transformation of the soul rather than transformation of the body um, within a particular moment. Um, I mean, Daphne, certainly, I feel like you could do that with her. I mean, she's experiencing a moment of trauma and her reaction to that is um, to make herself mentally um, uh, go somewhere where Apollo cannot reach her. Right. 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 To <laughs> shut down mentally. Yeah, exactly. And so she becomes the tree. Um I mean, go ahead. Well, I, I think we're sort of hitting on an important moment here, which is that like the logic 
let's see, let's uh, call it the logic of the psyche and body dichotomy is is so different in this time period when if you look at the at what's constantly happening in the poems that's so different than how we well it's what poetry does but we resist there's a lot of resistance to this in that the mind body and the natural world and the soul are all deeply intertwined and how crucial and religion of course and society they're all connected and how crucial this is um, to the modern reader to have to acknowledge as I often do here on the podcast to sort of like point out the Cartesian divide that we're all like we don't even under realize anymore how how we live this way but that we live incredibly mentally separate from even the mind-body dichotomy and we see that reflected in in the way that we talk about mental health and mental health care and we see a huge divide there um we see it in terms of how we interact with nature we don't see ourselves as psychically involved with nature at all like and that is reflected in all our what well, like I say it was like modern almost like modern myth about what man is um so I love how one thing that the book does and one one thing that the myths do is that they 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 provide a container in which to contain that uncontainable consciousness or something like that it all comes in and out of the mind and body and that things are fungible and changeable um I, I don't, is this, I, I, I don't even know what, I even had to pose the question, except that something has changed deeply about how we talk about things like the psyche and body. And, um, and yet it's still all very present. Like when we talk about trauma, we talk about dissociation. When we talk about trauma, we talk about being, you know, like, um, you mentioned, uh, uh, the what what the 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 male gaze on the body in anticipation of rape as breaking down the body into separate parts mm -hmm. and then also throughout bodies are being chopped up and dismembered and thrown around and not not to mention just changed right. but that somehow we understand that psychically things are chopped up and decompartmentalized and moved in diff different places interestingly it's not like Ovid's here to show us the way out it's mm -hmm. almost like it's just showing us it's just a way to sort of like look at it maybe yeah yeah I mean you, you mentioned our relationship with nature as well mm -hmm. and I think this is something that Ovid is really um, useful for us to think about because we have um, as you as you rightly say I think um, we have divorced ourselves from nature um, yeah. so much to the point where I think we see ourselves as like the opposite of nature in some right. ways, you know, and that we, we kind of have to crush it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have the, the city realm of humans and the natural realm of animals. And, um, and Ovid refuses to let that dichotomy stand, um, right. through, throughout, um, um, art has a very compl complex, um, and, and, um, relationship with nature, um, you can't divorce the two ever. Nature and art go together. That's right. Um, and also, you, you know, you talk about dismemberment. I'm thinking of this one myth, Erisichthon, who dismembers a tree 
um, cuts down a tree, but it's, it's a nymph. Or, it's a nymph. Yeah. And, um, and part of this, I think, is we can learn a lot from the Roman way of looking at the world that, you know, we talked about how the, the, the universe could have a consciousness. Well, they imbued nature with a consciousness as right. well. I and mean, this was really at the heart of Roman religion. Um, and, you know, and for this particular poem to constantly br- break the divide between humans and objects and nature, <laughs> right? We, those, you can't separate those out in this poem. Um, he does invite us to see these things as intricately connected as different kinds of uh, ways that you can be uh, both embodied and ensouled <laughs> in a yeah. way. Um, so yeah, I think it can be useful to read Ovid um, just to be reminded of these complex relationships we have with um, through art, through being human, through having bodies, through having souls, um, with the world at large and all of the um, ways that we interact with it. That's beautiful. <laughs> that makes you so happy. I'm wondering, I, I, we should probably wind down here and I'm wondering if we should read read one of the read one of the poems. Do you have a favorite that you like to read? We could read some of the Pythagoras bit at the end. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, where he does talk about um, sort of time in the body. Let's see if I can find a good one. Um, okay. Um, I think I'm going to – I can read the bit where he's just um, – he has just um, – He's just talked about the evils of eating meat, which I think is, speaks to a lot of people very um, loudly. But also you have to remember that in the world of the metamorphoses, it's just as dangerous to eat vegetables because you can, any human can you know, become a tree, right? You can become oh, right, a plant, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, I'd like for Ovid to be the spokesperson for vegetarianism perhaps, but, um, yeah, but um, yeah, in, right. in, in this bit, he moves on from that and he just starts to espouse the general idea of change as a constant in human, in the human life and the life of the universe as well. Wait, so he what, says, and this is page, page 449, starting oh. at around line 178. So, um, So he says, everything changes, nothing dies. Our spirit roams here and there, taking whatever limbs it meets, moving from beasts to human beings, then back to beasts. It never perishes. A soft wax is imprinted with new shapes and does not keep the same form that it had, yet is the same. So is the soul the same, while moving, as I teach, through various shapes. Don't let your belly's lust break duty's bonds. Do not, I warn you, banish kindred souls with evil slaughter, nor let blood feed blood. I'm born across great seas with swollen cells. In all creation, there is nothing constant. Everything flows. Each likeness forms in flux. Time, too, glides by in endless motion, like a river. Both the river and swift hour can never stop. Just as one current drives another, each propelled by one behind it, as it propels the one in front, so time both flees and follows and is always new. What was is gone. What is is not what was. Each moment brings a metamorphosis. You see the close of night advance today, how dazzling sunshine follows darkest night. The sky is different hues when all things rest at midnight and when Lucifer comes out on his bright steed. Aurora, daylight's herald, transforms its shade again, tinting the world. She must then yield to Phoebus. His disc blushes. 
while rising from the earth's uh, while rising from the earth's depths in the morning, then blushes too while sinking in earth's depths. But at its apex, it grows clear, since air is purer there without the taint of earth. Nor can the night's Diana always look the same. If waxing, she's now smaller than she'll be tomorrow, bigger if she's waning. What don't you see the year passed through four seasons, each with a counterpart in our own lives? In early spring, it's young and milky like a child. The grass sprouts fresh and soft and tender, and farmers are delighted by its promise. All things are blooming, and the blooming field basks in its colors. Yet the stalks aren't sturdy. When spring gives way to summertime, the year grows strong and hardy like an adolescent. No other age is stronger or more vibrant or more intense. After youth's passion fades, autumn ensues, mature and ripe, a time between old age and adolescence, sprinkled with gray around the temples. Old man winter comes next, disheveled and on shaky feet, and either bald or gone completely white. Um, our bodies likewise never rest. They always are changing. What we were or are, we will not be tomorrow. Once we hid inside our mother's wombs, just seeds, potential humans. Then nature laid artistic hands on us. She did not want our bodies to be squeezed and buried in our stretching mother's womb. She sent us from that home out to the air. Brought to the light, the baby lay there helpless, but soon was crawling on all fours like beasts. Little by little, shaking, knees still weak, it stood, its muscles aided by some prop. Then strong and swift it crosses into youth, and as the intervening years go by, glides down the sloping path to frail old age, which spoils and mars the strength of former days. So I can stop there. <laughs> mm, it's beautiful. That's some, that's some of my favorite lines. <laughs> and, uh, and I love this, nor are what we call elements unchanging. Yeah. Um, what I love about these lines is that nature herself becomes the artist. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is the opposite of what we have in the opening lines where nature becomes this chaotic thing that must be proved, improved upon by God. Right. Here, nature is the artist and her guiding principle is transformation, right? right. Um, which is really, kind, I think, kind of really beautiful. Yeah, and it makes you think, the more that you try to control transformation, the more you are thwarted and unhappy. And I think of the butterfly idea metaphor as well as we, you know, there's this sense in Ovid that we, ch we transform because we have to, it's our only way to protect ourselves. But the truth of the matter is too that well, of course, trans transformation is inevitable, but not only that, we, tr we transcend a sort of worm form or something like, yeah. like there's this, there's this, we, if, if our soul, if soul is butterfly, yeah. then there is a necessity to profound change, your entire makeup changed and i love too the idea of of course the worm's resistance to that change because on a cellular level right and that that sort of agitation or that resistance to change is part of the defining aspect of change and that yeah. we go through that that suffering essentially and that fear and that um grief at the old body um, and certainly I think as you were saying too, as we get older, 
our bodies change whether we want it to or not. Right. What matters is the inner transformation to match the outer transformation. Right. And maybe too, that's what he shows without pointing to this is good, this is bad transformation, but just all the different kinds of transformation and results of it. But it's so... When I think about the loss of our culture's appreciation of texts like this, Mm -hmm. that it's not some scholarly bubble that you you know as a pastime interest to just like cling to the old ways of loving the old texts or or nor is it is it some sort of you know sentimental like uh you know poetry uh hobby but actually has these fundamental hidden truths about what it is to to be a human. Right. Um, yeah. I think we've lost so much of the appreciation of what it means to inhabit these different times of your life as well um, that you see here. Um, we tend to connect. Um, I think we connect old age to loss almost invariably. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, I mean, Ovid, I think, can invite us to, um, you know, Im- if we want to embrace the transformation that time um, you know, performs upon us, then maybe um, not everything in youth is good here, right? Um, no, it the... seems pretty scary to be a young, <laughs> yeah. beautiful virgin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and you know, the, even the little baby he just describes, you know, it's, it's, it's full of promise, but it's not, right. it's not quite there yet. The, the stalks aren't sturdy, he says. Yeah. And then we're adolescents and it's so intense. Um, yeah. And I loved using that word to just to translate one of Ovid's words. And, um, and there's something kind of nice about um you know the idea of autumn it's the best season as you were saying it's right. the, the it's the season of transformation and change and um, it's everybody's favorite season and i like right. the idea that that's that's you know where one might be proceeding there are things in autumn um use another poem by horace he says you know autumn basically is the time where we can sit inside by the fire and get to know each other <laughs> and, and tell and stories eat, eat our good food we've worked <laughs> yeah. so hard for and exactly yeah, and tell our stories yeah yeah but i do you know there are um i think there are ways in which um you know the the idea of the four the four seasons of of humanity i mean this gets taken over into art by the four seasons of man and this is often depicted um in art you know you have these you'll have four images. Um, there's an artist I love. Her name is Elizabeth Columba. And she did a great uh, series based upon this idea, the four ages of, of woman, um, where she depicts, um, you know, four, a series of four women. Um, Elizabeth Columba is a, she's a French artist of Martinique descent. And so she, um, she paints four black women at different ages, which is very powerful. And her mother is the one who's in winter. And I don't know, there's something very beautiful. And so I, whenever I read those lines now, I think of Elizabeth Columba and her, her sort of embracing of, of this kind of change through, through art. And so she's still speaking the language of Ovid in so many ways. Yeah. And it feels so good just I don't know I've gone through such transformation psychically in the past three years and like realizing what that actually means and the psych interestingly I used to go backwards I used to think I had to change sort of physically or something and then I would change psychically or something and but 
changing, uh, doing that really, and I think of Dante here too, always, because I think of going down into hell to, to face what you have to face. Um, and then coming back up, speaking of transformation, I mean, you come back up and, and even though, even though you've sort of gone backwards, you can now go forwards in such a vastly different way. And you feel like, you really do feel like a completely different person mm -hmm. and yet more yourself than you've ever been. Right. So in this interesting way, there's this element of transformation that's like true transformation actually is somehow discovering a true self yeah. within there. Yeah. And, and you have to wonder too, in some of these transformations in Ovid are, are just aspects of themselves becoming manifest in the translation. I mean, are there yeah. are transformation. Are there ways that the transformation um, is a kind of way that the soul can become flesh? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. think of, sometimes this is negative. So like Hayon, for example, he's this sort of um, impious um, uh, king tyrant who tries to become... Um, he tries to become, or he tries to kill, I mean, he tries to uh, test to see if Jupiter is an actual god by killing a man and feeding it, feeding the flesh to Jupiter. And, um, and Jupiter transforms him into a wolf. And it's almost as though his, his soul has um, led to that, right? He's becoming right. what his soul always was. He already was that. He already was that, right? right. And, or, you know, conversely, um, you know, desire can can become materialized in a way. So I'm thinking of uh, Clitier, who's in love with the sun, and she becomes the heliotrope, which turns itself every day. You know, follows the sun across the sky, and so her desire becomes the the flower. And um, so I would like to think that perhaps, um, yeah, as we live, we are in a process of of becoming <laughs> who we have always been, um, instead of losing something. I had my, one of my students had a question that I wanted to field you before we depart. Okay. Um, Joni Capetta asks, I'd love to know if there was one myth that Stephanie had the most trouble with or deliberated the longest over. And what was that? And what made it difficult? And how did she resolve it? Oh, that's a great one. Um, so technical difficulty is different from me just wondering what in the world is going on here. <laughs> yeah, so, that's true. I mean, some of the most technically difficult ones are, I mean, there's this very long um, prophecy. Where, I mean, this is, I think, in book um, book nine, uh, Eolaus and the Prophecy of Famous. I mean, nobody reads that section. And it's also like, <laughs> the, <laughs> the most difficult Latin. And I mean, I just wanted to tear my hair out by the time I was done. And I can't even read it. I can't even read it. It's just such a painful translation process. Um, <laughs> but the probably the um, probably the story that I just spent the most time thinking about um, was Callisto, um, because it's it was first of all it's just a very complex story. Um, it's it follows on the death of Phaethon in book two. It is um, another rape story that we get following in the footsteps of Daphne and Io. And I had taught that story a whole lot. And um, 
And I realized in the course of translating it that the way that I had read it and the ways that it had been translated just to me were all wrong. Um, and, um, and so I had to do a lot of thinking about uh, Ovid's vocabulary around sex. Um, and so there are a couple words that he uses here. One is the word that we get um, our word crime from. In Latin, it's crimen. Um, and often it's been used in the soy plisto to uh, either refer to her crime, the crime that she has committed by having what was sex her? with Jupiter. Oh, she, she has sex with Jupiter? Yeah, it's not her crime, though. It's his crime. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but lots of translators call it her crime. Interesting. And, yeah. And then the... Well, um, we do see a lot of women getting punished for being raped. We do, exactly. And so the idea is that maybe she is internalizing that, right? This idea that she is blaming herself or the other well, people. Well, how much does her. that track? I mean, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> right. in terms of people, yeah, women taking on, oh, this is all my fault. Yeah. Right. I mean, in trauma yeah. in general. And then the other um, word there is the word culpa, um, which means when we get like, you can say like mea culpa, like that's my fault. So it can mean like your fault or it can mean like a sense of guilt. But in Ovid, it just often means like sexual misbehavior. And oh, um and so I just realized in um, translating that, that everybody had assigned these words to Callisto and there's absolutely not a single thing in the Latin that supports that. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> um, and, and usually it is, um, I mean, it's all in reference to Jupiter and what he's done. So uh, Ovid, when, uh, when Jove, Jupiter, uh, rapes Callisto, says that he revealed himself because he's in disguise as Diana. He revealed himself to her not, not without crimen, not without crime which means he rapes her and the rape is called a crime, right? In okay. that moment, she's not doing anything um, wrong. And, um, and then so Creeman reappears at various points um, in the story, um, always around a word of revealing. So he reveals himself to her as he, uh, with, along with crime. So it's about revealing something. And then she almost reveals the crime on her face. And then the final thing that she reveals is uh, the right. crime through her pregnancy. That's right. So, That's um, right. Yeah. That and was a tough one. It's tough. And so yeah. a lot of people want to say, like, how does she, how, how does she reveal her sense of guilt? How does she reveal, like, she almost exposes her sense of guilt, her guilty conscience on her face. I'm like, no, no, no. This is actually not at all what's going on. Um, he is, he has perpetrated a crime against her and she doesn't want anybody to know. Right. Right. <laughs> because she's, well, even in that myth, she didn't, she didn't want to be in the woods anymore because the woods had seen it and she felt so ashamed. That's and right. it's interesting you bring that one up because when you thought of, we were thinking about, oh, the body transforms, but does the mind transform? She's portrayed as so lighthearted and knows the woods so well yeah. and is such a good hunter. And then we see her psyche so vastly changed after the tra trauma. Yeah. And, and her relationship with the woods is changed. In right. Nature. Yeah. Right. And, but that moment of, that's interesting that of course you would wrestle too with, I mean, and probably Ovid had a lot of intention and in the repetition of that specific yes. word. Yeah. And then you have to wonder as translator, ah, but what was up? Yeah. What was up with that? Yeah. And to me, it's about the challenges of translation. That's what that whole story speaks to. She doesn't want anybody to know. And so she has silenced, I mean, she's become silenced through this. She chooses not to speak. Maybe she can't speak. She can't tell what has happened to her. Maybe she has no words to describe what has happened to her. She doesn't tell anybody. Right. Um, but her body reveals it. Um, 
gradually. Right. And those around her have to, to translate basically what has happened to her. So right. the nymphs, the nymphs almost perceive it. And the word that Ovid uses is sen, sen, uh, sentio, which means like to, to sense it, to perceive mm-hmm. it, to understand it. Um, to, so to perceive the crime, to understand the crime, how do you reveal a crime when the victim isn't speaking, right? right. Um, and so then you have to translate her body, translate her corpus. Um, right. And uh, and then so this gradually shows itself on her body as her body transforms. And um, first the nymphs almost translate it correctly. Then Diana kind of translates it correctively, correctly, but also horrifyingly incorrectly as well. Right, she right. blames Callisto. She doesn't quite understand. Juno is the only one who I think translates it correctly. <laughs> um, she rec- she realizes what has happened, but it does speak to the the challenges of translation. That it's about translating. It's about interpreting a corpus that um, isn't always going to come right out and tell you how it wants to be interpreted, mm, right? <laughs> right, and. Um, and so, so much of what informs one's ability to translate is experience and your subjectivity. And so I thought about this a lot. Um, Ovid says the nymphs almost get it right because they have, you know, they're often the ones who are victimized themselves. Diana right. doesn't have the experience to understand this. She's mm. got too much power. She's not vulnerable enough. And she's the virginal goddess, right? Right. So I just, you know, it makes me think that, that you have to... Um, you have to have different eyes looking at these texts and thinking about them in different ways. And, and our own um, ways of reading are going to help us translate. And sometimes we're going to translate correctly. And sometimes we're going to translate horribly incorrectly. And uh, because that's what, that's what Diana does. That's what yeah. um, causes the, you know, the horrifying trauma to Callisto is being rejected by Diana because Diana has not read her body correctly. Right. And so it just was really important to me to think about that myth so carefully. Mm. Um, and as a translator, I really wanted to get that one right. Um, and I've written a lot about how um, I don't think that, that that those terms in her story have ever been understood correctly. Um, so I tried to After fix, all you know. this time. Yeah. Yeah. We want, we want her to feel the blame, right? I don't right. think that's it at all. I think she just wants to hide what's happened to her. Right. Right. I all I can say is thank you. Thank you so much for doing that work. I mean, it just couldn't be more important and more exciting and uh vivid to read. Vivid. I mean, a hard a hard text to I mean, it's been it's like haunting. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's just so I'm just so grateful. So thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I really, yeah. really appreciate your interest in the translation and, and your reading it and, um, and, and your interest in Ovid, which is great. <laughs>